whenever my world falls apart I never lose hope or lose heart Whatever the form of the storm that may brew Not with you to lean on, darlings, you Welcome to The Original Cast, a podcast about original cast albums and the people who love them. I'm Patrick Flynn, playwright, filmmaker, and professor of communications at American University. How does a bastard, orphan, son of a whore and a Scotsman, dropped in the middle of a forgotten spot in the Caribbean by providence impoverished and squalor, grow up to be a hero and a scholar? This week, the Pulitzer Prize for Drama was awarded to Lin-Manuel Miranda's musical Hamilton, making it the ninth such musical to earn this distinction. So I thought this week we'd look back on the other musicals that won the Pulitzer Prize and how they're different, how they're similar, and what their legacy has been. What's your name, man? Alexander Hamilton! The Pulitzer Prize for Drama is the most prestigious award given in American theater. It is given to one play once a year. If no play gets a majority votes from the jury, no award is given at all. In fact, no award was given in its inaugural year of 1917. So the first Pulitzer Prize for Drama was actually given in 1918, the second year of the award's existence, to Jesse Lynch Williams's Why Marry? They didn't give an award the next year either. Can you imagine if the Oscars worked like that? In its 99-year history, the Pulitzer Prize for Drama has not been awarded 10 times, most recently in 2008. The most infamous of these is in 1963 with Edward Albee's Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf when the Pulitzer board overruled the drama committee saying the play was too vulgar to receive the award. This is why Edward Albee often says he has three and a half Pulitzer Prizes. According to Pulitzer.org, the Pulitzer Prize for Drama is awarded for a distinguished play by an American author, preferably original in its source and dealing with American life. The cash prize is $10,000. Of the 84 Pulitzers awarded for drama, nine have been musicals, roughly one a decade. In the 1980s, the committee started announcing finalists along with the winners, and two musicals have had that distinction as well. Lisa Crone and Janine Tesori's Fun Home. Welcome to our house on Maple Avenue. See how we polish and we shine. We rearrange and realign. And Lynn manuel Miranda's first Broadway show, In the Heights. In the Heights, I hang my flag upon this The first musical to win the Pulitzer was in 1932. Of the I Sing has music by George Gershwin, lyrics by Ira Gershwin, and a book by comedy titans George S. Kaufman and Maury Ricekind. It's a satire of American politics in the Gilbert and Sullivan model. Bachelor John P. Wintergreen runs for president of the United States on the Love platform. His campaign organizes a beauty contest so the nation can select his wife for him. But prior to the competition, Wintergreen falls in love with Mary Turner and refuses to marry the pageant's winner, Diana Devereaux, 
Merry mix-ups ensue, including an almost war with France and an impeachment trial. Of Thee I Sing opened at the Music Box on December 26, 1931 and ran for 441 performances. When it gave the award, the Pulitzer Committee said, Of Thee I Sing is not only coherent and well-knit enough to class as a play, but it is a biting and true satire on American politics and the public attitudes towards them. The play is genuine, and it is felt the Pulitzer Prize could not serve a better purpose than to recognize such a work. However, at the time, the Pulitzer Prize was considered a literary award and so was only given to Coffin, Reiskind, and Ira Gershwin. George Gershwin received no recognition at the time, but in 1998, the centennial of his birth, he was posthumously awarded an honorary Pulitzer. The overt satire feels very old hat today, which is probably why you may never have heard of this show until just now. There is no original cast recording of the show, but there is a 1950s revival recording. I recommend, however, the 1987 Columbia Records studio cast recording starring Larry Kurt, Maureen McGovern, and Jack Guilford, and conducted by Michael Tilson Thomas. It comes as a double-disc set with the show's sequel, Let Them Eat Cake. There are some great songs, but on the whole it is a product of his time and has very little to offer an audience of today. In 1950, Rodgers and Hammerstein's South Pacific became the second musical to win the Pulitzer Prize. Based on James A. Michener's book Tales of the South Pacific, with a book by Hammerstein and Joshua Logan, who was initially ignored by the Pulitzer Committee, South Pacific was a phenomenon, winning 10 Tonys and running for 1,925 performances. It tells the story of American Navy nurse Nellie Forbush, originated by Mary Martin, who falls in love with a middle-aged French plantation owner, originated by Easy Opinza. But she recoils from him upon discovering he has two mixed-race children. The show deals with prejudice of all forms in a method well ahead of its 1949 opening and it contains many of Rodgers and Hammerstein's best-known hits. Some enchanted evening You may see a stranger There is nothing like a day Nothing in the world Dolly High may call you Any night, any day I'm gonna wash that man right out of my hair. I'm gonna wash that man right out of my hair and send him on his way. You've got to be taught to be afraid of people whose eyes are oddly made and people whose skin is a different shade. You've got to be carefully taught if you'll excuse an expression i use i'm in love 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 with a wonderful guy there is an abridged original cast album available which is glorious and several revival and studio recordings that cover the complete score 
and neither South Pacific's impact nor its popularity have diminished with time. The 2008 revival starring Kelly O'Hara ran for 996 performances and won several Tony Awards. My friends, come election day, put that pencil cross next to the name of Fiorello H. LaGuardia. L-A-G-U-A-R-D-I-A. The name's LaGuardia. Composer Jerry Bach and lyricist Sheldon Harnick are best known for Fiddler on the Roof, currently enjoying a New York revival at the Broadway Theater. Other than She Loves Me, also currently enjoying a Broadway revival starring Laura Benanti and Zachary Levi at Studio 54, their other musicals, Tenderloin, The Apple Tree, and The Rothschilds, are generally not popular. But it was their largely now-forgotten 1960 musical Fiorello that won them America's highest dramatic honor. With a book by Jerome Wideman and George Abbott, Fiorello, with an exclamation point please, tells the story of New York City's mayor from 1934 to 45, Fiorello H. LaGuardia. Tom Bosley originated the title role of the diminutive mayor of the people. The original production ran for 795 performances and won three Tony Awards. More on that later. There's not much to say about Fiorello. Its opening was overshadowed greatly by that year's massive hit, The Sound of Music. The subject matter is hyper-local to New York and New Yorkers of the era, and it doesn't make any effort to elevate LaGuardia into a greater pantheon of American politicians. The show plays pretty fast and loose with the facts of LaGuardia's life, and so should not be seen as an accurate historical document. And aside from the song The Very Next Man, which I'm told every young woman in music theater has in their book, it is largely forgotten today. I shall marry the very next man who asks me, you'll see. Next time I feel that a man's about to kneel, he won't have to plead or implore. I'll say yes before his knee. It's the floor. But the original cast album is a lot of fun and a must for any theater devotees. It also popped up on the ninth episode of Mad Men's first season. Don Draper, how are you? <laughs> Probably about like you, enduring the splendor of Fiorello. <laughs> how to apply for a job. How to advance from the mailroom. How to sit down at a desk. How to to take memorandums, how to develop executive style, how to commute in a three-button suit with that weary executive smile. This book is all that I need. How to, how to succeed. Frank Lesser, Abe Burroughs, Jack Weinstock, and Willie Gilbert's How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying won the Pulitzer Prize in 1962. The satirical story of wide-eyed seeker of wisdom and truth, J. Pierpont Finch's climb to the top of the American business ladder starred Robert Morris as Finch, Rudy Valley as his boss, and Bonnie Scott as the woman happy to keep his dinner warm. It won seven Tonys and ran for 1,417 performances. It's been revived twice on Broadway in 1995 with Matthew Broderick, Ron Carroll, and Megan Mullally, and in 2011, starring Daniel Radcliffe, John Larroquette, and Rose Hemingway. It's also probably playing at a high school somewhere within driving distance of you right now. Although the satire is a little uneven, How to Succeed is a great show. Fun, funny, and poignant. It survives today not only for these reasons, but also because it continues to be relevant, for better or for worse. This book is all that I need. How to, how to succeed.
A Chorus Line was the brainchild of director-choreographer Michael Bennett. He wanted to tell the story of the American theater gypsy, those dancers who move from show to show, always seen in a crowd, but never get the chance to shine on their own. He interviewed tons of gypsies about their experiences, including Donna McKechnie, Kelly Bishop, Priscilla Lopez, and Sammy Williams. Then he recruited James Kirkwood and Nicholas Dante to turn it into a script, with composer Marvin Hamlish and lyricist Edward Kleban providing the score. The story behind this 1976 Pulitzer winner and Broadway phenomenon is just as compelling as the show itself, and is well documented in Denny Martin Flynn's book, What They Did for Love. The original production ran for 6,137 performances and won nine Tonys. From 1984 to 97, A Chorus Line was the longest-running show in Broadway history. It is currently the sixth longest behind Les Mis, Cats, The Lion King, Chicago, and Phantom. You'll see colleges doing A Chorus Line and the occasional regional theater, but it doesn't get produced as often as you'd expect for such a phenomenal hit. One reason for this may be the specificity of its setting. A Chorus Line is very 70s in its script and score, and then is not quite old enough yet to be kitsch. Also, the fact that there are no star roles and everyone, and I mean everyone, needs to be a capital D dancer hurts the chances that amateur theaters will do it, which is a shame because it is a phenomenally well-written show. What does he want from me? What should I try to be? So many faces all around, and here we go. Let her look for me to tell me why she left me, as I always knew she would. I had thought she understood. They have never understood, and no reason that they should. But if anybody could... I'm just going to go ahead and confess at this point that I think Sunday in the Park with George is the greatest musical ever written. The themes it deals with are so simple and yet rarely seen in American drama. Stephen Sondheim is at the height of his powers and crafts his most gorgeous and interesting score. And James Lapine's book tells a simple story that is deceptively easy to follow. Act One gives us a fictionalized account of the artist Georges Seurat painting his masterpiece, A Sunday Afternoon on the Island of the Grand Jatte, in Paris in 1884. Color and light. There's only color and light. Yellow and white. Just blue and yellow and white. Look at the air, miss. See what I mean. No, look over there, miss. That's done with green. Conjoined with orange. Act two is about his fictional great-grandson, George, an American artist in 1984, who spends most of his time raising money and little time creating. Bit by bit, putting it together. Piece by piece, only way to make a work of art. Every moment makes a contribution, every little detail plays a part. Having just the vision's no solution, everything depends on execution. Putting it together, that's what counts. The board of the foundation is meeting next week. Ounce by ounce, putting it together. You'll come to lunch. Small amounts, adding up to make a work of art. First of all, you need a good foundation, otherwise it's risky from the start. Takes a little cocktail conversation, but without the trauma preparation. Having just the vision's no solution. Everything depends on execution. The art of making art. 
As the filmmaker Joss Whedon put it, Act 1 is about being a genius, and Act 2 is about not being a genius. Though the original production starring Mandy Patinkin and Bernadette Peters was nominated for 10 Tonys, it won only two for set and lighting design. It did run for 604 performances, but lost most of its initial investment. The original cast album is a must. There is also an excellent video of most of the original Broadway cast from the Booth Theater that aired on PBS, which you can find on DVD and download today. I'm not a huge fan of the 2006 London Revival cast album. I don't like the new orchestrations and the other adjustments, though minute, do bother me. But it could just be me. Today, Sunday in the Park with George is regarded by many as Sondheim's masterpiece. But many people believe the show would be better without the second act. They find the story of Surratt, his fictional mistress, and the other people in the painting enough. But like Sondheim and Lapine's other two-act collaboration, Into the Woods, without Act Two, Sunday in the Park with George is nothing special. It's good and fun and dramatic and touching, but it's not until Act Two that we see how Surratt's achievements will wither and die if we don't take them up ourselves that the show really transcends. 1984's George creates light machines and claims advancing art is easy. We come to find out that is not the case. What George is good at is the art of making art, but not art itself. Georges is good at art, but not the art of making art. Sondheim and Lapine are saying you need both. And if you don't think that's relevant today, just ask anyone trying to make a living on YouTube. Anything you do, let it come from you. Then it will be new. Give us more to see. In 1996, Jonathan Larson's Rent, like a chorus line in South Pacific before it, was a cultural phenomenon. I was 16 at the time, and though most of us theater geeks had never seen it, we all had the cast album. Rent models itself on Puccini's La Boheme and tells the story of artists, musicians, filmmakers, street performers, and others living in Alphabet City in Manhattan in the mid-90s. I'm sure we'll cover Rent in the near future on this show, so I'm not going to go into a detailed synopsis, but Act 1 shows our characters coming together on Christmas Eve and Act 2 deals with most of the following 12 months, how they grow, break apart, and come back together. It's not a perfect show. The sentiments are a little saccharine, and it has been suggested that if Jonathan Larson had not tragically died during previews, the show would have not won the Pulitzer. But I disagree. What Rent has going for it is an earnestness. As an adult, we may watch these 20-somethings flaunt the system with their wide-eyed optimism and think, just wait till you grow up. But that's the point. The cynicism with which we gaze comes from somewhere, and Rent refuses to give in to that cynicism. Is it realistic? No but it could be. Rent is hope for the future. Rent is yes we can. Rent is, ultimately, the living embodiment of the line the character of Mark has at the end of the Act One finale, La Vie Boheme. The opposite of war isn't peace, it's creation. The only thing that will save the world is creativity. Viva La Vie Boheme! My psychopharmacologist and I call it a lover's game. He knows my deepest secrets. I know his name. 
course, the optimism of the 90s gave way to the terrorism of the aughts, which gave way to the madness in which we now reside. And in 2010, Pulitzer winner Next to Normal, music by Tom Kitt, book and lyrics by Brian Yorkie, speaks directly to that. The six-character show deals with the family torn apart by secrets and lies. The mother's struggles with bipolar disorder form the backbone of the show, along with the issues of grieving, suicide, drug abuse, and psychiatric ethics. Next to Normal won the 2010 Pulitzer Prize for Drama under some controversy. It was not on the list of three candidates that the five-member drama jury submitted to the 20-member Pulitzer board. The drama jury chairman at the time, Charles McNulty, publicly criticized the board for overlooking the three plays because they were not running on Broadway at the time. Next to Normal is a tough show, but mainly because of its brutal honesty. It doesn't employ shock tactics or stick itself in the audience's face. It actually keeps the audience at an arm's length, which makes it all more compelling in my opinion. But something next to normal would be okay. Yes, yeah, something next to normal, that's the thing I'd like to try. Close enough to normal. To get by, we'll get by, we'll get by. Before I talk about what these shows have in common, I feel I should stop and say there is no correlation between winning the Pulitzer Prize and winning the Tony Awards for Best Musical, Best Score, and or Best Book. Of course, the show could run off-Broadway and therefore be ineligible for the Tonys, but that has not happened yet with the musical. Of the I Sing debuted before the Tonys were created, and Hamilton's probable sweep of the Tonys won't happen until June 12th of this year, so of the remaining seven shows, five have won Best Musical, three Best Score, and four Best Book. Fiorello is a unique case. It tied for Best Musical with The Sound of Music in the Tony Awards' only Best Musical tie so far. There were no Tonys for Best Score or Best Book in 1960 when Fiorello was eligible. Of the six Pulitzer Prize-winning musicals that could win Best Musical, Best Score, and Best Book, only three did, South Pacific, A Chorus Line, and Rent. How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying won musical and book, but Frank Lester's score lost out to No Strings, which had music and lyrics by Richard Rodgers. Next to Normal took home Best Score, but lost Best Musical and Best Book to Billy Elliot. But it is Stephen Sondheim's masterpiece Sunday in the Park with George that holds the dubious distinction of winning none of the big musical Tonys. It lost all three to Jerry Herman and Harvey Firestein's La Caja Fole. And when Jerry Herman accepted his Tony for Best Score, he said this. This award forever shatters a myth about the musical theater. There's been a rumor around for a couple of years that the simple, hummable show tune was no longer welcome on Broadway. Well, it's alive and well at the palace. Many took this as a dig at Sondheim. Herman has since denied this, but since the biggest criticism of Sondheim's music has been that it isn't, quote, hummable, I would have to call bullshit on Mr. Herman. Of course, Sondheim already had three Tonys for Best Score and would win two more after this show, and he did win the Pulitzer the following year, so I guess it's cool, Jerry. I am not throwing away my shot. I am not throwing away my shot. Hey, yo, I'm just like my country. I'm young, scrappy, and hungry, and I'm not throwing away my shot. Like I was not surprised that Hamilton won the Pulitzer Prize. Aside from the fact that it is an amazing piece of theater and a truly genius piece of writing, it has the vital component that the Pulitzer Committee is looking for. It is a distinguished play by an American author dealing with American life. Like all the previous winners, Hamilton is taking a look at the America of today. Of the I Sing dealt with the chaos of Depression-era politics, South Pacific with the racial awakening that was beginning in the late 40s, 
Fiorella showed us how we got through the depression, how to succeed lampooned the newly begun rat race, a chorus line shined light on the people entertaining us in the 70s, Sunny in the Park with George took a look at the art culture of the 80s, Rent showed uptown audiences what life was like downtown in the mid-90s, and Next to Normal looked at the medicated life of a post-9-11 society. But what makes Hamilton so amazing is it looks at the political structure of today through the story of how that structure began. Hamilton educates us about the past for sure, but it also enlightens us about the present and gives us hope for the future. We hear so much empty rhetoric about the founders and the framers from pundits and politicians. Lin-Manuel Miranda has put them on stage and shined light onto one simple fact that often gets lost. They were people. Just people. People like us. They lived in extraordinary times to be sure, but they bickered and got drunk and loved and died and made choices. Just like us. Hamilton reminds me less of the other musicals on this list and more of another Pulitzer Prize winning work, Thornton Wilder's Our Town. At the start of Act Three, the stage manager tells us this. Now, I'm going to tell you some things that you know already. You know them as well as I do, but you don't take them out and look at them very often. I don't care what they say with their mouths. Everybody knows that something is eternal. And it ain't houses, and it ain't names, and it ain't earth. It ain't even the stars. Everybody knows in their bones that something is eternal. And that something has to do with human beings. All the greatest people ever lived been telling us that for 5,000 years, and yet you'd be surprised how people are always losing hold of it. There's something way down deep that's eternal about every human being. At the end of Hamilton, Miranda closes with the words, who tells your story? Because the who is just as important as the what. As Marshall McLuhan said, the medium is the message. But as Washington tells Hamilton, we have no control. We cannot choose who tells our story any more than we choose who lives or dies. Who will tell your story? Oh, I can't wait to see you again. It's only a matter of time. The original cast was recorded at the Media Production Center at American University. Special thanks to Jeffrey Madison, Tom Fish, Imani Mular, and the tireless staff of students who man the front desk. Follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook at OriginalCastPod. You can follow me, Patrick Flynn, on Twitter at UnknownPenguin. If you're in the D.C. area, my 10-minute play The Ferberizing of Coral is part of the 2016 D.C. Source Festival as part of their Secrets and Sound block. For tickets and performance information, visit sourcefestival.org. You can email us at originalcastpod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your questions, comments, concerns, public admissions of guilt, and or suggestions for future intermissions. Subscribe to the original cast on iTunes, and while you're there, please leave us a comment and a rating so other people can find the show. I'm Patrick Flynn, and I can't. I have rehearsal. Click, boom!